All right, let's get into our study. We're still in John 6. We will be through the rest of the month. Probably won't get through the whole chapter. There's so much there, but let's do a little review. In our study in John 6, we find ourselves originally in Bethsaida, in the east part, eastern part of Galilee, so we're in the north. We're talking about the Passover feast. That's the time period we're in. It's interesting. Again, as you go through Scripture and study Scripture, get specific about the detailed issues that God's giving us. We're going to get some detailed information again in some of the verses that we're going through this morning that are going to cue us into the specific time of this, the event. We've met Philip, we've met Andrew, and we've met a boy. We have a very large crowd. We're talking the counts are always usually in men. So we're talking about 5,000 men. That's excluding the count with women and children. So we're looking at a really a crowd that's being fed anywhere between 15 and 20,000 people. So the order of magnitude just amplifies itself. They're also at a time period, they've been there all day with, with Jesus teaching. He's been teaching. He's been healing. We find this in the other texts of the Gospels. We also find, too, that it's late. They're hungry. It makes sense. You also start noticing, too, what Jesus is doing. You start focusing in on what his attitude is. His concern is for the people. He has compassion on the people. First, he sees them as lost sheep without a shepherd. He teaches them the truth. He's also healing. He's ministering to them specific, their physical needs, and at the same time, too, their spiritual needs. As Jesus is continually going through, because they're at this time period where they're hungry, he has concern for them at that point. We went through the fact that he actually looks and turns to Philip and says, Philip, what are we going to do? Feed these people. Well, what did Philip do? Pulled out the calculator, went through, came up and said, well, eight months of wages is not going to be enough to buy bread for everyone just to have a nibble. So he's saying there's already a limitation of what's going to go on. He's from that area. So he would know what's available. Again, our mindset shifts, has to shift back 2,000 years because our mind is, if I need about 20,000 loaves of bread, what am I going to do? Well, I'll go to Publix and I'll go to Walmart and I'll go here and here and here and here and here and I can pick them up, right? They don't have that in those days. So there's quite a limitation as to what they can do. You get Andrew, he finds the boy with the barley. Again, remember, barley is what? Barley loaves are for the poor. It's not what you'd say the rich and the wealthy would be having this. Barley loaves are for the poor. So we're identifying and seeing this, this little boy as being someone who is from a poverty side of the culture. And he has two little fish. A personal meal, nothing that's going to do 5,000. But we think Andrew's got it closer and we think Andrew might hit that winning number and say and look at Jesus and go, Jesus, I've got these five loaves and these two fish with this boy. Do something with this. I know you can multiply it. He doesn't. He comes and goes, and what is this to this size of a crowd? So we're like, oh, come on, Andrew. He just bombed on that one. So we've got Philip tried to go through the humanistic kind of factoring, calculating, dealing with it. We've got Andrew, who got a little bit closer. We also studied, too, that Andrew's pattern of, of his life is to just constantly keep bringing people in contact with Jesus. We asked ourselves the question, do we do that? 
Are we in the business of bringing people to Jesus so they're in contact with Jesus? Or do we just go through our life like an automated machine? So we should be thinking about those areas. So again, Jesus has compassion. Questions we have asked in the last couple of weeks, why do we follow Jesus? Have you examined your heart to see why you follow Jesus? Is, is it because what you can get? Or this is good feel? Or is it because he is the only one who can give us life? He's the only one who can satisfy our needs. Remember, if we've been in John long enough and study, you've already gone through the woman at the well, and Jesus told her that I have water that if you were to drink from, you would never, ever thirst again. And she goes, where are you going to get this water? It's an interesting thing, too, when you go through that text. She gets kind of indignant. She has a little bit of an attitude with Jesus because he first asks her, and I'm trying to go through a review on this, he first tries to ask her, could you get me some water? And she's like, uh, this is not normal. I'm a Samaritan, and you're a Jew, and we don't have chats. And you don't ask me, we don't, we don't talk, okay? And Jesus gets into a dialogue with her and says, and she gets indignant in the fact he says, I've got water. And they're right there by the cistern, and it's Jacob's well. And she kind of makes a little harsh statement going, what do you think, Jacob, was the idiot where you've got a stream just right down the road? And that's where you, you're telling me you're getting this living water and what Jacob was the idiot because he dug, spent the time to dig this well? And you've got a water source? What, do you think I'm dumb? No, she was missing the point. The spiritual issue is that Jesus is the living water. Now we're getting the same thing. We're getting a lesson for the apostles and the people to actually see Jesus as the creator. So in the process of feeding the multitude, we're going to see the fact that Jesus is the creator and he can multiply the food from literally nothing, from the five loaves and two fish. So we're seeing him as creator. And we're also going to be checking to see if whether or not these apostles are picking this lesson up, as well as how the crowd reacts. So anyway, with all that happens, the people are needing food. It's too late to go out and go get anything. It's too late to even organize that. So the question is, is what is the creator of all things going to do here to meet the physical needs of the crowd? You know what? These kind of things, when I'm studying the Word of God, focus gets me to focus in on exactly what Jesus is going to do. I want to know. I'm waiting. I, I'm anticipating this because I want to learn. I want to see what God is going to do. It should cause us all that same reaction, thinking they can move in and start taking a look deeply into what's going to happen. Man's efforts have been exhausted. It's no avail. Nothing's happened. Literally, and I think the most beautiful point you and I can ever learn We're only left with Jesus. Man's out of the picture. He can't provide. Jesus is the only one front and center that we look at, that we know that can provide. So let's turn to John chapter 6. Let's read this next section, large one, verses 10 through 15. And we'll see the reaction, the issue with the crowd. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, 
He told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You notice one thing? Jesus is in charge. He takes charge of the situation. Now we're going to have to start pulling together a little bit more detail from the other gospel writers that are giving us. Remember, John's focus is the person and work of Jesus, and that's what he's focusing on. You don't get a lot of extra information when John's writing. John wants to keep you focused on exactly Jesus' action and movement. But we're going to go a little bit outside the boundary with John and pull in some of the other gospel writers to fill in some of the blanks. So as the crowd sit down, on what? Green grass. Mark gives us a little more detail in the seating of the crowd. And this is interesting, too, because you start seeing the organizational work that, that goes on, that Jesus is keeping things organized. He's keeping it systematized and to the point where people are together and working together. Mark six thirty nine and 40, he says, And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. Notice, green grass. Second time it's been said in another gospel. They sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. So it's, organ, it's organization in these small groups. Notice the specific detail of the ground. You kind of go, hey, this is why we study the scriptures in detail. It should make you kind of read along going, green grass? Why are you even saying that? So what? What's the big deal about green grass? It stated that it was green grass, and the key point here helps us to know the, the time of this event. Again, you and I know what happens to our grass in Florida. When the rains stop, it goes, things kind of die off. Well, it's considerably different than that in Israel and in that whole area. We're in the springtime with the Passover. Interesting information. Here's some stuff that I found out. They state that in spring in Jerusalem is that fleeting two to three week period. Are you kidding me? So we're talking about green grass that's giving us a two to three week time period. And that's the time period we're sitting in. We're not talking about months. We're talking about weeks. Sometime in late March or April which is exactly the time period where the Passover is. When almond trees blossom pink on every corner and blood-red poppies uh, sprout in empty lots and road dividers. When is summer? Summer is May to September. It's an extremely hot time period. What's going to happen with that green grass? Well, your rains are going to be stopping. The intense heat is high, it's dry, that green grass is going to go to brown. So they're not sitting on brown grass on brown hills. The specific detail here that the Scripture is recording for us, it's green grass that they're sitting on. So we know that we're talking about this specific time period of the Passover. It's still spring, the two to three week period. How long is our spring? A little bit longer than two to three weeks, isn't it? It was amazing to actually realize that Biblically, we're really talking about a very tight time period. 
Again, Jesus takes the five barley loaves and two fish, and after praying to the Father, he multiplies it to feed the crowd. What are we watching? An event? Yes. Specifically, a miracle. We call it a miracle. We look at it a miracle, and we see the miracle is specifically God-orientated. What blows my mind today in our world, we've got higher critics of the scriptures that are out there, liberals, And they attempt to revise the biblical record and try to remove and eliminate all of the miracles. It's a sick thing. But here, reading something that R.C. Sproul remembers in a time when he was growing up in his family church and his pastor was one of those that was one of those liberals. And R.C. writes, recounting how this story was modified. And believe it or not, this is what a lot of people are doing today. The truth of Scripture, where you're looking at a miracle, they're taking it and turning around and saying, well, miracles don't exist. That's just a fabrication. R.C. remembers this in growing up. He said, I'll never forget how our our minister dealt with the story of the feeding of the 5,000. His pastor states, here's how it really happened. Doesn't that make you kind of want to go, "Uh uh-oh. If you ever have a preacher that ever comes up with, well, let me tell you really how it happened, and you're kind of going, Whoa, I'd get up and leave. He said, he then explained that this crowd of thousands of people included many who had had the foresight, oh, aren't these wise people, to pack lunches for themselves, but there were also those who had neglected to make provision for a long day on the mountain. Really? Therefore, when this huge assembly came together and it was time to eat, of course, everyone had their sack lunches, right? There were haves and have-nots. So Jesus found a little boy who was willing to share his lunch with others, and using this little boy as an example, Jesus persuaded those who had brought provisions to share with those who had none. Thus, the miracle was an ethical miracle. Do you buy that? Really? But that's going around today. Be careful. Guard yourself the junk that's out there. Know the scriptures and know what God is doing. John is clear in describing this as a miracle. Just, you know, let's share a sack lunch. I tell you, what are you going to find in a sharing five loaves and two fishes from a kid? How much sharing are you going to get out? He brought his lunch. Okay, fine. How are you going to divide that up in a group of 500? Mm. Really? If this was just an ethical teaching, then the crowd would not have been stimulated to call it a sign. You notice that too? Again, as you look at the context, they noticed this as a sign. They wouldn't have identified it as just a sharing of the lunch. They would have just said, all right, we just had lunch. We just shared it with a group around us. It wouldn't have been called a sign. It's called a sign. It does make me wonder considerably the fact that you've got pastors that are out there teaching this kind of drivel. And people are buying it. Why? I think for the most part, people aren't in the word for themselves, studying and knowing for sure and checking. You know what the thing I love the most? And it only hits us one little time. But when Paul was teaching, and the Bereans took what Paul had been teaching, they took everything that he said, went back and examined and studied the Scriptures for themselves to see whether or not Paul was speaking the truth. They verified it against the truth text. Let me ask you, do you do that? 
I love Steve's teaching. I love all the teaching out of this pulpit. But do you still take notes and go home and check and examine and dig and, and verify for yourself to say that that is truth that is being spoken? So many times I see people come in and out of church and they just nod their head and they walk out. Do you realize how fast it is that we just forget these sermons that, that we're sitting under the teaching of? How fast? Try it on yourself. Just maybe, maybe you and your spouse just go, hey, can you give me the high points? In the, two days later, give me the high points of the sermon from, from Sunday. This is, say, Tuesday. It'll be depressing. You know, you'll still go, well, um, well, Joe spoke. <laughs> and, and, and David Jenkins spoke. It was nice. It was a good, really? Examine and see whether it would be the truth. Philip has already calculated the cost of the feeding and come up short, a human response. Andrew brought the boy and declared that this wouldn't be enough, right? Now, the other Gospels give us detail of the feeding of the feeding miracle. Miracles, and I have to keep this in my head, miracles are God's, not man's. Man doesn't make miracles. Man doesn't create And I have to keep in my own thinking, never defame God by stealing his glory from him. Give him the rightful due. When he does a miracle, he gets the glory. Never us. And you know what the amazing thing is? And you get this right square out of the text. The crowd was fed to the max. He continually kept multiplying and distributing food until these people, what? Were full. They weren't at a snack level. They were at a full dining level. Let me give you a little bit of a hint about how God works with us. Do you ever see God just barely giving you something which you need? Just kind of barely handing it out? You have a great need. He gives you a little bit towards that need. I don't see that in my life. I see him fully satisfying the need. Of course, you and I are in the battle zone to determine whether something is a need or a want, right? Oh, I really need that large vehicle. Mm. I got a Yugo. You know, but it met the need, right? Kind of idea? Did anybody know what a Yugo is? Did I just speak past myself? It didn't last long. Kind of like the Edsel, you know, kind of an in and out kind of deal. God provides our needs in abundance. I remember this thing growing up. And I have no idea where it came from, but probably some of you have heard it. They always say God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? Or the resources that we need are in the bank, the heavenly bank. And the question always is, so why aren't you writing a check? God provides our needs. We go to him for our needs. He will always do it. So after the crowd was full, Jesus asked the disciples to go through the crowd and collect the remains so that nothing was lost. No waste. We cannot hold a specific reason why we have 12 baskets because we're never told as to what that impact is. But some have speculated as to the meaning. Some point to the representation of the 12 baskets as pointing to the 12 tribes of Israel of God, holding to a covenant-keeping God who meets the needs of Israel. I don't know. I don't really feel that one. Why? Because the ones who really saw the gathering of the 12 baskets were the 12 
disciples. It was very personal. I think it was personal to them. I think these guys had to get the message. The other point is the disciples were the ones receiving the significance of the 12 baskets. They're to remind them specifically that Jesus provides for the needs in abundance. Why wouldn't these men need to know that specifically? These are the men that are going to be going out and proclaiming the gospel to all people. These are the men who have to be understanding deeply that God is a providing God. God is a giving God. I love that statement, don't you? God is a giving God. Go back to Genesis. He created everything, created the plants, created the animals, created everything, created the environment, created Eden, created everything. And then he created man and gave him all of it, except for one tree. He's a giving God. When he gave his son to die on the cross for our sins, that's a giving God. That's he's in the business of giving. So my mind always settles on the fact that these 12 men gathered knew the count. It was specific to them that Jesus meets in these, and these were the men who are going to be sent out that have to know this truth absolutely. No wavering. Philip tried again. We'd see human, human reasoning to meet the needs of the people. Andrew brought the boy. Jesus met the need to an abundance and an overflow. These men needed to know this truth. So do we. You know what? Paul knew this too in his own life as God moved the church to meet his needs. Paul was always, needs were always being met. We get a little bit of an insight in this too when we go to Philippians 4, verses 15 through 19. Paul says, You yourself also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. This was not a wealthy church, okay? For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. And not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. God be the glory. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. Wow. Hmm. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? As God uses others to meet our needs. I am amply supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To God be the glory. He gets the praise. He's the one doing the miracles. He's doing the work in our life. Now let's see the crowd's reaction. It's a little different. Because of the signs and the miracle of feeding and healing the sick, the crowd misinterprets the message and they go off. They have the knowledge of the Scripture but not a complete knowledge. They're missing pieces. By this time, they have been so deluded as to the truth of Scripture, they're looking for the wrong Messiah. They know the Messiah. They're fully aware of it. They're anticipating his coming. They see the Messiah for what they can get. They identify Jesus as a prophet. We see that in the text. And they could be thinking about Deuteronomy 18.18. It says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. 
So they have identified. They've gone back. And where, where Moses was the one proclaiming that this is what the Messiah will be doing, they say he's a prophet. Still short. Not seeing it. They see him as a king who will help them have freedom from the Roman occupation. Interesting, I read a commentary that was kind of saying, this is kind of weird, that they would actually be thinking that this would be a better way if they got rid of Rome. What did Rome provide? What's the Pax Romana? It was a highway system that was totally protected, and also the fact, too, that, that they had roads that they can now travel in the Roman Empire freely without thieves, and they would be protected on these roads because the Roman army went through it. They had a great economic system. It was a civilized world. They had civilization. Why in the world would they sit there and say that they wanted to be their own nation? They were looking for an earthly king. Here would be the greatest king to have because, look, this guy can do everything. He can heal you. He's got great teaching. He's a good motivational speaker. And food, folks, during famine times, we wouldn't have it. We would be the folks with everything. This is a great guy. We've got to have him, okay? This is perfect. This went right down the list. Now, this is a Jesus to get. This is for yourself. They have knowledge to see Jesus as a prophet and enough knowledge to see him as king but are missing the final point in Scripture. And I think we do the same thing. They do not see him as priest. So what's the priest do? The priest is the one who intercedes for the people, for the nation of Israel, to God. He's the one who presents the sacrifice. What's unique about this priest? He is the sacrifice. They missed it. They wanted something quick. They wanted something temporal. They wanted something now. They weren't looking for the spiritual side of it. They weren't looking for what was really causing the wages of sin is death. They missed him as being the priest. They seek Jesus for selfish reasons. He knows this, and to protect them from any further error, he withdraws from the mountain. Looking at the crowd, we see that they are seeking a political Messiah. It has nothing to do with the spiritual life. See, that's the kind of life that they've gotten used to. All mechanical, all external, everything, what you do. Look at the Pharisees. What are the Pharisees? They were all this regimented system and everything, but Jesus looked at them, you guys are what? You're just whitewashed. You look pretty on the outside. You're a whitewashed tomb, and all you got inside is just a bunch of dead bones. That's what they were being trained to think like. They weren't looking for the spiritual aspects of being holy in the heart. Why do you think when Jesus retaught on the Sermon on the Mount the commandments that they were like, and Jesus says, if you have what? Anger? Under God, you have already convicted for murder. Why? Because God looks at what? It's the intent of the heart. He's not looking at the outside surface, but the Pharisees have gotten everybody looking at the external surface. How do they give? How do the Pharisees give? They had kind of metal containers on the wall. They would give it a nice launch in the coins. would make a nice little jingle, 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 and they'd have a horn trumpet as they gave. Very external, very outside. What was their heart? Dead. All external. There was also, they were nicknamed, the Pharisees were nicknamed the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. Why? Why? Well, they didn't want to look onto a woman and have lust. So 
a woman would pass by, they'd close their eyes. One thing you do when you close your eyes, you do what? Stop walking, okay? You always teach your, teach your kids that. Keep looking forward. Don't look back while you walk, right? Well, what the Pharisees do? Kept walking. What would they fall into? Oh, pits, fall, bruise and bleeding. All external. How's the heart? Useless. We move further. Go to John sixteen twenty one. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then, when they had rowed about three or four miles, this is all night, folks. They're not making a lot of headway here. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. No more wind. The events seem to be a little choppy. Again, John is writing very specific on Jesus, but let's get a little bit wider view here. Matthew fourteen twenty-two through 24. Matthew says, Immediately he had the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. While he set the crowd, sent the crowds away, after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. The disciples are now on the boat going to their next destination, and things get rough on this lake. I started to think, we've seen this lake do this before. What is with this lake? I had to do some digging. It wasn't much. Interesting thing, you go to the um, Institute of Creation Research, gives you a little bit of an understanding of what this lake is all about. And it starts making, making sense. Such storms result from differences in temperature between the seacoast and the mountains beyond. The Sea of Galilee lies 680 feet below sea level. It is bounded by hills, better known as the Golan Heights, especially on the east side where they reach 2,000 feet in height. These heights are a source of cold, dry air, and in contrast, directly around the sea, the climate is semi-tropical with warm, moist air. You start seeing cold, warm, moist. We had to get that right, cold uh, hurricane kind of starts mixing up. And directly around the sea, you get this moist air, and the large difference in heights between the surrounding land and the sea causes large temperature and pressure changes. This results in a strong winds dropping to the sea, funneling through the hills. So where did this wind come from? Natural occurrence. The Sea of Galilee is small, and these winds may descend directly to the center of the lake with violent results. And when the contrasting air masses meet, a storm can arise quickly and without warning. Small boats caught out in the sea are in immediate danger. The Sea of Galilee, believe it or not, is relatively shallow. It's 200 feet. You know what the problem with that 200-foot depth is? You get a strong wind. You get a lot of agitation that goes and starts hitting. There's not enough surface below to take that energy and disperse that energy down through a lake. It's too quick. So the reverberation is kind of a reflexive occurrence at 200 feet, it's too shallow. And of course, no deep water, that storm's going to be violent and it's going to be fast. 
and they usually start right dead center. What do these men see? Well, they're fully aware. Who are the guys in this boat? Remember, before we've already had a, a considerable storm with these guys in the boat. Some of them are fishermen. They're professionals. They know about what this. They grew up in the area. They know the condition. They were the ones convinced that we're going to die, right, in the first storm that we had earlier. This one, they're just rowing hard. Why would Jesus put these people in this kind of harm's way? What's going on? He's safe in the mountain praying. You know what? Take a look at Mark. Mark 6, 47. This verse hit me when I was studying it. It was when I was uh, laid off from work. I was distraught. Sleepless nights, you know, that kind of stuff. And I thought in my mind there was that passing thing. Jesus has no idea what I'm going through. <laughs> yeah, I had the arrogance to think that stupidity. Mark 6. Here's, here's how he defines this. He says, When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land, seeing them straining at the earth. Whoa, whoa, stop. Wait a minute. <laughs> hello, 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 hello. Wait a minute. It said that he, Jesus, was alone on the land. Okay, he's praying. He's on the mountain. He's on alone. He's on the land. He's not. Okay, he's away. He's not in the boat. All right, all right. Jesus, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, 3 to 6 a.m., he came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them to get their glaze. Folks, that hit me. Jesus is on dry land. He saw them. He knew their condition. He knew they were straining. They were working hard against the oars, straining against this headwind. What do we do? How many times have I gone through in my life as a believer and I sit there and think Jesus has no clue what's going through in my life, that I'm in this desperate situation, I'm in a hard time, I'm just absolutely distraught. Why? Jesus knew every situation. And you know what kind of blew up as I was going through deeper in the study and we find out that Jesus meets them on the lake. And remember, this is the scene where they first think it's a ghost, it's a phantom, and they're all nervous and they're all scared. First thing that Jesus does, he comforts them and said, it is I. It's also that time, too, where we have our brother Peter. Peter is just the kind of guy that we need to be. Sometimes not a lot of deep thinking going on, but he's just a reactionary. And the fact is, I'm here in the boat, Jesus is out there. I don't like being apart from Jesus. I've got to get to him. Can I come out? Hello, Peter. Let me explain this to you, Peter. A little bit of a problem here. You're a fisherman. You and I both know that there is no buoyancy that you're going to have with your little sandals stepping out on that water. You are not going to walk on the water. You're going to funk like you're not going to even bob, buddy. What are you thinking? Jesus has come. Whoa. I, in my mind, I got a feeling as, as Peter is asking Jesus if he can come out in the boat, he's probably got one foot over the edge of the boat. That's just my thinking. That's just how impetuous he is. And Jesus says, keep your eyes fixed on me. 
Don't get concerned about the stuff going on around. You can't deal with it. You can't manage it. You can't do anything with it. On me. Me alone. Jesus alone. He's the only one that's going to answer the situation. What's Peter do? Peter walks on the water, so don't argue that point. But what does he do like we do? (gasps) You focus on everything else, all the circumstances around you. You and I both do that. What happens to us? As it did with Peter. He sank. I really wish the story would have continued on, at least finished, because Jesus came up to him, and they got back to the boat. Now, just knowing Jesus, what do you think Jesus would do at this point? Peter! Absolutely ridiculous. Come on, let's go. Dragging him through the water. Do you think that's what Jesus would do? I don't see that. I see him picking up Peter and going, Peter going, Peter, on me. Only. Not the circumstances. Let's get back to the boat. That's what I I see Jesus doing. You know, the amazing thing is, Jesus knew what was going on Even to the detail, which hit me a little bit later, where did Jesus meet them? Right where they were. (laughs) He not only knew what they were going through, he knew where they were going through it. And he met them there in their crisis. What does Jesus do for you and I? He meets us at the point of our crisis. He meets us specifically knowing what we're going through. He is there to meet our needs to the fullest, to take care of us, to be a comfort to us, and to have compassion on us and minister to us and help us. So when you start hitting that button and you're thinking of panic and that God's not aware, He's fully aware, He's there, and we'll let it go. I know you're going to still have the same problem I had where in the brain your little flesh kicks in and goes, but, 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 but what? Nothing. So I have to always go back and rehearse all the things that Jesus has continually done in my life to take care and minister to me. It, I rehearse those things in my mind. I review those things. I go back. Has Jesus ever been faithful? Oh, all the time. Has he ever been unfaithful? Nope. Is he always there? Yes. Has he ever not been there? No. What do I always forget? God is always here everywhere where I am. It's never a vacation for him. He is always here. He's fully aware. And I love it that Mark added that piece. I mean, that helped. That was such a lesson in my heart. I think what was sad, though, with our disciples in the boat, When Jesus got in the boat and the water went to glass and the wind stopped, they were astonished. Who missed the point of the miracle, of the feeding, the creation of the food? These guys. They refused to see Jesus as the creator of God. Their minds are impenetrable and they could not connect the miracle from the afternoon to the supernatural power of Jesus over the wind and the waves. They were missing the connection. Do we see Jesus for all that he is, the creator? Do we see him as having the power over all things, and do we go to him for all things? That's the biggest question we've got to come this week 
and look and go, do I go to Jesus with everything? Trusting him and knowing that he will be there to supply and meet the need, to comfort, to care for me. No one else is, but Jesus is the one who's going to do it. It's not be like the crowd and look at him for the little genie in the in the bottle and rub it and there he is and voila, we get what we want. No, no, no. Jesus is the high priest who not only sacrifices but is the final sacrifice to pay for our sins. That's the greatest need that you and I have is his saving power over sin. Not only is he the creator, but he's his savior. Let's pray. Father God, we got to come away from this knowing you more intimately and knowing your character. Jesus created the food, provided the need, met the need of the hungry crowd that were there to hear his teaching and to be healed, but missed the point that he was the high priest that would actually be the one who would take away the sins of man. Father, we also learn, too, that Jesus, while away on dry land, was fully aware of his men in the boat, the condition of the wind, the hard rowing that they were going against, and he met them there. Father, teach us to know more of you and to trust you, see you as creator, see you as the one who is the most concerned of our need and will meet the need in abundance. Father, forgive us for our tiny faith and forgive us for not turning to you for all things, thinking that we have a human response that's better than yours. Father, thank you so much for your love, care, and compassion. Thank you for sending us Jesus, for giving us new life. We praise you and love you. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.